Welcome to the City Reach Baptist podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, good morning, church. Wasn't that a beautiful time of worship, just pointing ourselves to him? Um, My name is Graham, and I'm one of the pastors here at City Reach. Uh, Actually, my full name is Graham Smith, and it just so happens to be the exact name of our former South African cricket captain. And uh, once upon a time, when I still lived in South Africa, I had a problem with my mobile contract. So I called up the company, and I'm chatting to a young guy, and I'm giving him my details, and suddenly there's this pause in the conversation. And he says to me, you're not the Graham Smith, are you? And because I'm not fully sanctified yet, I said, yes, I'm the Graham Smith. Now, I knew what he meant, but I played along. And for the next three minutes, this guy gushed all over me. I can't believe I'm talking to Graham Smith, which is technically true. He was, but it's not what he thought. And I played along. I played along. I I pretended I was right there with him, and uh, I didn't ever let him know. I finished the three minutes, put it down, said bye. I thought I made his day. I felt what it was like to be loved and adored, but there's something kind of inside me, like I knew I was a little bit of a fake, right? Just pretending. But nothing quite like this guy. This guy, does anyone know who this is? Oh, somebody knows him. Yeah, Frank Abagnale. So Frank Abagnale is one of the world's greatest con artists. Uh, this guy, at age of 15... He noticed, as he was walking through the airport, he noticed that the car rental companies and the airlines would uh, drop their deposits from the day, all their cash, in this drop box. So Frank, age 15, goes to a costume shop and he hires himself a security guard's uniform. He then goes and puts a sign up over the drop box which says, out of service, place deposits with security guard on duty. And it worked. People would literally walk up to Frank and just give him bags of money. And later Frank would comment, he would say, I can't believe this actually worked. I mean, have you ever heard of a Dropbox that's out of service? But later, Frank at 16, he thinks this is not enough. He impersonates a pilot. He calls up Pan Am Airlines and he says, look, I'm a pilot, I work for you but uh, there's been a mix-up at my hotel and I've lost my my pilot's uniform. No problem, they sent him a brand new one. Frank then forged a pilot's license and proceeded to fly jump seat all around the world. Now, jump seat is when you come along and you say, I'm a pilot, I need to fly to this destination to fly a plane, and they say, no worries, come in the cockpit and fly jump seat. So Pan Am estimates that between the ages of 16 and 18, Frank flew more than 1.6 million kilometers. He flew to more than 200, he flew on more than 250 flights and to more than 26 different countries. And as a company pilot, he would arrive where in his destination, he'd go to the hotel, check himself in, eat like a king, and then send the bill to Pan Am. Pretty impressive, right? I mean, who says young people can't be creative? That's pretty good. 
But Frank was a fraud. It wasn't who he really was. And I don't know if you've ever felt like that. That you felt like you're just pretending. You have the uniform. You have the respect. But you know something is missing and it's not who you really are. Nicodemus was such a man. As Pastor Timon taught us last week, he was the teacher in Israel. He's part of the religious elite. And yet, this man knows something is missing in his life. He looks at Jesus and he says, you've got something. I don't have it. But because Nicodemus has this reputation and he's so concerned what others might think of him, he sneakily goes to Jesus at night in the dark when no one can see him. And he comes to Jesus wanting to learn about God and instead he's confronted with the Son of God himself. And then Jesus absolutely blows Nicodemus' mind by telling him, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Yes, Nicodemus, you, the religious elite, you must be born again. Now, you can imagine Nicodemus' mind at this stage. He's probably thinking like, whoa, Jesus, have you got this right? Like, do you know who I am? I'm a Pharisee. Like, I work in the Sanhedrin. I'm like a good religious person. Jesus says, yes, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And then Jesus is about to really, really mess with Nicodemus. And this is what he says. We all know it. Let's read it together. Here it is, verse 16. All together, one, two, three. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God loved the world? I mean, Nicodemus is thinking, God, I can get you loving Israel, the chosen people, but the world? The Americans? The Canadians? The Indonesians? The Australians? And even the South Africans? The Gentiles? The nations? Yes, God loved the world. And through this, Jesus is going to answer three critical questions which we all need to wrestle with and have an answer for. And the first question is this. Why did God send his son? Now, I want you to notice in verse 16, it starts with this little three-letter word, for. Now, I was taught that whenever you see for in Scripture, you ask the question, what is it there for. Now, in the Greek, the word for and so is one word. It's the Greek word hutos. Now you know a Greek word. Now you can forget a Greek word. But it is a connecting word. It means in this way, in this manner. And if your Bible has footnotes, if you look, the verse can actually be translated like this. For this is how God loved the world. So we need to ask the question, how did God love the world? In what same way did God once love? 
And we're going to need verse 14 and 15 to get the full picture. You will never understand John 3, 16 completely unless you look in the light of John 14 and 15. And this is what it says. It says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, Nicodemus, listening to this, would have known exactly what he was referring to. He was referring to a rather sordid story from the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 21. And in that story, we have the children of Israel, and they're setting out from Mount Hor, and they're going to the Red Sea, and they're going around the land of Edom, and it's very hot, and it's very dry, and the people become impatient. And this is what it says. Have a look with me together. This is what it says, verse 5. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. And here it is. Here's the question. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Grumblers and complainers. But we would never do that, would we? Not us, right? We wouldn't be ungrateful, would we? It gets worse. Let's have a look. The rest of the verse says this. For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Now, that sentence doesn't even make sense. There is no food, but we loathe this food. Right? doesn't even make sense. What a bunch of losers. Right, what a bunch of losers. These guys are not thankful for anything that the Lord has done for them. They have strategically forgotten how he's provided for them, how he saved them, how he's rescued them time and time again, how he's performed miracles for them, and all they do is complain. Now, I can relate to a little bit how God might feel, just a little bit. Just before we left Hong Kong, it was one of my children's birthdays. And we thought to ourselves, like, this is their last birthday in Hong Kong. It's kind of like a farewell. Let them say goodbye to friends. So we're going to make it special. And I thought we did. We, we went to town, and we kind of made it special for them. But on their birthday, I'm not telling you who it was, but he was, <laughs> was uh, complaining Complaining, he came to me and he grumbled and he complained about stuff that he thought he should have had or friends should be behaving differently. And in my heart, I'm thinking, how ungrateful can you be? After all I've done for you, you're moaning about what you don't have. And then I need to remind myself, I do exactly the same thing. I do exactly the same thing. Thing. Now we have to understand that the Lord is just, he is holy, he is righteous, and he must deal with the sin of ingratitude. And this is what he does. He sends snakes amongst the people of Israel, poisonous snakes, and the people are bitten, and it says this, many people of Israel died. They deserved it. They had brought this on themselves. It was their doing that this happened. And they get it, right? The light goes on. Oh my goodness, we have blown it. So they go to Moses and they say, Moses, 
We're so sorry. We have sinned against you and against God. Please pray to God that he will take away the snakes. So Moses goes and he pleads with the Lord and he gets this answer. Let's look at it together. Verse eight. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses does exactly what God told him to do. He takes a bronze snake, he puts it on the pole. And God, true to his word, when anyone was bitten, all they needed to do was look at the snake that was lifted up and they would be healed. They would have life in them again. And I want you to notice the people's desire is, Moses, take the snakes away from us. Take it away from us. And you know what God does? He doesn't take the snakes away from them, but he provides a way out. He provides a way in which they can be saved. All they needed to do was just look up on the snake and they'd be free. The poison of death that was in their body would have no effect on them. They would be free. Now I want you to imagine just for a minute that you or an Israelite, you've been grumbling and you've been complaining and now there are poisonous snakes in your camp and you've just been bitten. Now, I've never been bitten by a snake, but apparently it feels like you are burning. It feels like you're on fire. And all you have to do is go to this bronze snake that is lifted up and you just need to look at it and you'd be free. This poison would have no effect on you. I can imagine if that was you, you'd be running around shouting, I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm not gonna die, I am free. I deserve to die for what I did, but I'm free. God has provided a way for me to be saved. Now, John 3, 16, in the exact way in which God loved on that occasion, he loved on this occasion, God provided a way out, a way in which to be saved. Guys, here's the truth. We've all been bitten by the sting of sin. None of us, not one of us, can say that we are without sin. That we've always done and thought and said the right thing. There are times that we should have spoken up that we were silent. There are times that we should have shut up and we spoke. The things that we have all done, we have all been stung by sin. And we are all under a sentence deserving death. But God provides a way out. He provides a way to be saved. And we have to ask the question, why would he do it? Why would he do it? What motivates this God to do this for us? And I want you to notice in John 3, 16, it says this, God loved, past tense, the world. Now, in the Greek, that word is in a very special tense to indicate that it happened on one occasion. There was a special occasion in history when God himself came down and acted in love. What was that occasion? 
The cross. The cross was that occasion. You know, the Greek language is more descriptive than English. Even Aussie English. Can you believe it? And uh, there are many words for love. We tend to use love to describe anything, right? We say, I love pizza and I love my wife. And hopefully they mean different things, right? (laughs) But here, the word used is the Greek word agape. Now, agape is not a sentimental, wishy-washy, cooey-cuddly type of love. God did not look down on the world and think, oh, man, those guys, they're just so lovable. Look at them. That guy, Graham Smith, oh, That's not it at all. Not it at all. Agape is a kind of love that is filled with care and compassion and action. It does something. It's a love that does something. God looked down on a dirty, sinful, ungrateful, self-righteous, prideful people, and he said, I love them too much. I myself will go down and do something. I will love them. That is the kind of love we are talking about. The same way that he provided for the Israelites after their grumbling and complaining, for time and time he had rescued them. In the same way, he offers us his gift. But the difference is the first time it's a snake on a pole. This time it's his son. It's his son, his one and only son. Guys, we need to get this. God's motivation for doing that is supremely one of love. A gift offered to us. But now he does say that we are to believe in him. Okay, quick question. Who believes in me? Okay, that's very encouraging. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Let me ask another question. Who believes that I exist? Hands up. Okay. You see, you just got to say it the right way and you get a better response. Um, but those of you who raised your hands and said you believed in me, how do I know that you believe in me? You need to do something to show that you Believe in me, right? If you gave me all your money or your family to look after, I would know that you believe in me, that you trust me with something. Pastor Timon put up his hand and my wife put up her hand. Both of them have trusted me with something. My wife trusts me with a lot more. (laughs) Credible woman that she is. But that's the kind of believing in we need to talk about here. It's a trusting him. It's about giving him everything. It's about saying, this is my life. I believe in you. I trust you with everything. And through this all, I want you to notice, this is telling us something about God's character, who he really is. It reveals who he is. You know, one of the most hurtful things that, really grips my heart is when people describe God as a monster. Like unbelievers can say the most terrible things and 
it really doesn't bother me so much. But when they talk about God and they talk about his character in such an evil way, it really grips my heart because he is nothing, nothing like that. This is a God who cares so deeply. He has such compassion that he sends his only son. Now, there are many things that I might possibly sacrifice for nice friends or family, right? Maybe a good friend of mine needed a kidney. I might consider giving up a kidney. But just to be honest with you, there's a lot less things that I would sacrifice for really dodgy people. It's a lot less I'd give up, right? But one thing I would never do, no matter how nice you are or if you were family or not, I would never give up my children. Never give up my children. But here we have a God who gives his one and only unique, perfect son for us. And he didn't give it up for nice people. He gave it up for grumblers and complainers. For selfish, sinful people. Like me and like you. You see, God didn't do all that. He didn't go to all that because he wants to condemn you. He's doing it because he's providing a way out, a way in which you can be saved because he loves. He loves, guys. Here is the ultimate picture of love, a gift given to us. And he loved us while we were at our absolute worst. He steps in and loves us and gives us this gift. Now, that's beautiful. It really is beautiful. I always kind of hope when you, when you say something like that, someone's going to say hallelujah or amen, right? That should be the response in our hearts. But it leads us to a second question. Yes, God loves the world. And he loved the world to such an incredible degree that he sent his son not to condemn it, but to save the world through him. But then we have to ask ourselves a question, why do people reject this? Why do people say no? Have you ever wondered about that? Why is it that two people can hear exactly the same message and one just like, nah, not for me, and others just receive it gladly? And this is what this passage tells us. It says that people who reject God's provision of a savior, of the forgiveness of sins, do so because they love darkness. They love darkness and they fear that turning to Jesus will expose their evil works. You see, here's the truth. You either love the darkness of sin or you love the light of Jesus. This is what it says in verse 19. Let's have a look. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Frank Abagnale spent many years running, right? He would pull off this great cons. Like he started off as a security guard. He then convinced people he was a pilot he then convinced people he was a lawyer with a Harvard degree. He then even convinced people he was a medical doctor. But every time Frank was close to getting caught or close to be found out, he would run. 
he would run. He was afraid that he would be exposed. Because he really, he loved his deeds of darkness. And he feared the shame and the guilt and the consequences of being exposed for who he really was. Now we get that, right? We get how Frank must feel. Because Frank's a bad man. He's cheated. He's defrauded people. His deeds are dark. But what about Nicodemus? What about this religious man? You see, Jesus in this conversation, he's actually telling him, Nicodemus, your religious pretending is actually a work of darkness. You think you are the light, you are leading people light, but you are leading people in darkness. Nicodemus, you need the light. Now, light does two things. First thing light does, it exposes hidden things. It exposes hidden things. Uh, now, when my wife was in Australia, I was still in Hong Kong, and I was finishing up there, and the kids were staying with me. And uh, one night, in the middle of the night, I got up to get a drink of water, and I had forgotten some food out. I don't know how long I'd left it out for, maybe days, but uh, I'd forgotten it out. And when I turned on the kitchen light, what I saw was all these cockroaches just scurrying away. It was gross, okay? Guys, this is what happens when your wives leave you alone. It's not a good thing. Right, but the light had been exposed. It, ex it exposed what it was hidden. I had no idea that they were there. And those cockroaches hated the light. As soon as it was on, they scurried away. They loved what they were doing and they loved being in the darkness. Guys, and let's be honest. Sometimes we love our sin under the cover of darkness because there are things that I do and I don't think I'm alone in darkness when no one is looking that I would never do in the light. A little bit of gossip here, a little bit of cheating over here, a little bit of lust, a little bit of greed, a lot of selfishness. But when the light of the cross comes, it turns it on and all that is exposed. All that cannot remain hidden. You see, the greatest sin that you could ever commit is to throw God's gift back in his face. Is to say, oh, I don't have anything. No, thanks. What a gift he gave. He gave his son and to turn around and say, no, thanks, God. That's not for me. I'm quite happy with my deeds of darkness. You know, it's kind of like the Israelites, if they were bitten by a snake, and they knew it, they knew it was their fault, and Moses says, all you need to do is to look upon the stake on the, on the pole, and you will be saved. And to go, no thanks. No thanks. It's possibly the worst thing that they could do. But it is true that many choose that way. Many choose that when they hear about Jesus and him crucified, they turn and they walk away. And what this passage is telling us, if someone does not respond to the gospel, it means that they love something in their life more than they love God. 
Now, they might not even know it. They might not even be aware of it. It might be their intellect or their pride or a stubbornness or an unwillingness to humble themselves and be changed. The Bible says that's like a, it's evil. It's an evil barrier. And one day, what is hidden will be revealed. And that's one side of it, right? Those people are already condemned by their choice. They choose to love darkness. It's a very somber warning. A very somber warning. There is another side, and this is a glorious side. We look at it. Like, what about those who do receive God's light? Question number three. What about those who do receive God's light? Verse 21 says it like this. Let's look at it together. It says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You see, people who come to the cross and say, Jesus, I put my trust in you, their deeds of darkness are no less offensive to God than anyone else's. My deeds of darkness are no less offensive when I brought them to cross, when I brought them to the cross than anyone else's. So what's the difference? What's the difference? The difference is when I come to the light. I bring everything, and I know it's going to be exposed. I know it's going to be exposed, and everything is laid bare. You see, there's nothing that you have or haven't done that Jesus doesn't know about. And to realize that, that all you can do, you cannot hide it from him, and you come and you say, these are it. Lord God, this is everything I've done. And you show it to him. And here are these words. It says, his works, those who have come to the cross, his works have been carried out in God. Now, in Greek, that word means, carried out, means to be examined, to be looked at. You see, the light of the cross shines upon your deeds and it burns them up and it replaces them with only his righteousness. My deeds have been carried by God so that I don't need to carry them anymore. I don't need to be bound by sin and shame anymore because he has carried them for me. All the guilt and all the shame and all the self-righteousness and all the pride is dealt with in the light of the cross. My deeds have been carried by him. And then more than that, he gives me, he gives me the gift of eternal life. He gives me his righteousness. The people who come to the cross and say, here I am, here's everything, are the same people that realize it is his kindness that leads us to repentance, that leads us to the place where we say, we willingly turn away from darkness and we turn to the light. I told you earlier that light has two functions. And the first function is that exposes what is hidden in the darkness. But the second thing light does is it guides. It shows the way. Uh, now, just before leaving Hong Kong, myself and two mates, two Aussie mates, we decided we were going to do a night hike all the way through the night in the hills of Hong Kong. 
So very excited, like boys do get, about these kind of things. Uh, but one thing we forgot, two of us forgot that we needed extra batteries for our headlamps. So at about three in the morning, our batteries go flat, except for one guy, not it wasn't me, right? But there we are, the three of us, huddled together with this one guy with a flashlight, and his, his light is just lighting the way, just the next step we're to take. And we know that if we follow him, we'll get to where we're supposed to go. He's lighting up the way. There's darkness on either side of us, but we choose to follow the light. Guys, the light of the gospel lights the way. It's his light that leads us on the path of salvation. It's his light. When we follow him, it's he who changes us. It's he who molds us. You know the beautiful thing about light as a guide? When you lost, when you go off track a little bit, all you need to do is look back at the light and you find your way back. That's all you need to do. Guys, we need to face the truth. But when we realize that we do not have the power to change ourselves and that we realize that our deeds are not just little things that hurt no one, they are offensive to God, they are deeds of darkness. When we realize that and we come to the cross and we say, Jesus, have it all, your beautiful cross, take it all, he responds and he comes and he changes us and he takes our deeds Frank Abagnale was eventually arrested in France, 1969. And at that stage, he was wanted in 12 different countries for fraud. 12 different countries all wanted to lock him up for a long time. He had been exposed. His sin was displayed for the whole world to see. On every newspaper, there was the story of Frank Abagnale. But there's a twist. You see, the FBI, who had chased Frank all around the world, offered him a job. They said, Frank, come work for us. And Frank has spent the rest of his life, and he's still alive, and he's still doing this, catching fraudsters. What a turnaround, right? Frank thought, this was it, at the age of 21, if I get caught, that's it, game over, life over. People will know I'm not really a doctor, I'm not really a lawyer, I'm not really a pilot, I'm not even really a security guard. They will see all my sin and all my shame and my life will be over. But actually, that moment was just the beginning for Frank. He went from a notorious criminal who did everything in the dark with deception and deceit to someone who is now a decorated FBI agent. He walks around in freedom, pursuing freedom for others. What a turnaround. But what about Nicodemus? What about this man who has this conversation with Jesus? Right? What happened to him? You see, Jesus says to him, your works, your religious pretending is like works of darkness. Now that's probably just the most offensive thing Jesus could have said to him. So this man who came to Jesus in the dark, did he turn to the light? Well, all we need to do is flick ahead a few chapters and we get to chapter seven and we find Nicodemus again. But this time, 
Nicodemus isn't hiding in the dark. He's not so concerned what people think of him. He's standing in front of the Sanhedrin and he's defending Jesus. He says this, right? They, they're all accusing him, Jesus. And Nicodemus comes to his defense and says, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? The same man who was too scared to be seen with Jesus is now standing up for him. And then we go through to the burial of Jesus and we find Nicodemus bringing the myrrh and the aloes to anoint Jesus' body, to embalm Jesus' body. And it says that the amount of aloe and myrrh Nicodemus would have brought would only have been brought for a royal burial. Nicodemus, Nicodemus considered Jesus his king. He turned to the light. Guys, here's the challenge for us. If you're sitting with us this morning and you do not yet believe in Jesus, we are so blessed to have you and so encouraged that you're here with us. But I encourage you not just to sit there passively, but to respond. Respond to this beautiful light that God is putting on display and to know that Jesus has not come to condemn you, but he has come to save you. Guys, can I invite the worship team up just as we do this? It's one thing I'd like to finish with, just an encouragement to all of us. We might have come and we've had our sins exposed and we've come to the cross and we've said, Jesus, take it all, carry my burden. And the truth is that it just becomes so, so casual for us we forget. I was uh, chatting to someone just after the second service, and we're talking about just where I come from. And I said to them, in Hong Kong, like the idols of the city are obvious. It's money. But when I arrived in Adelaide, I just didn't know what it was. Couldn't work it out, right? And they said to me, it's the good life. People are just looking for the good life, right? They want to be comfortable. They want to have enough time to do what they enjoy doing. The good life. And my encouragement today is in light of this beautiful gospel that we do not succumb to the idols of the city, but that we pursue Jesus with a whole heart of devotion. Not half-heartedly, but a whole heart. My encouragement to you is continue in him continue to trust his light and his leading. Guys, we do not ever need to feel like a fraud. We do not ever need to feel like we're pretending because God has called us his children. His children, that's who you are. Nothing can change that. We do not ever need to feel unloved. Because if you ever get to that stage where you feel unloved, all you need to do, all you need to do is go to the cross and look at the cross and you will see love on display for you. And you are more loved than you will ever, ever realize.